Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Albert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking at weirdness in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that strange stuff, however, what is going on? Well, at the release of this episode, it's a few days until Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and that's not our only celebration. We're recording this two months early, so I'm feeling even less festive than I might otherwise do. But yes, Merry Christmas, everyone. It might be a couple of months early, but there has been whole rows of Christmas foods and seasonal stuff in Tesco for the last fucking month. Even way before October started, they had shitloads of stuff out there. All right, Scrooge. Yeah, but on the other hand, mince pies. Yeah, I like mince pies, but then I've got Tiff yelling at me saying, no fruit in my cake, nah! So I can't bring <laughs> any of that stuff in the house. Yes, and that's not our only celebration. This is episode 250, 250. Yeah, that is a lot of episodes. We obviously have got all the specials and so on on the feed as well. So yeah, it's probably going to be closer to 300 episodes in the feed if you look at those. You know, I don't feel a day over 240. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's been a long, strange trip. So, Scott, you were in Trebuchet magazine again. Yes, I have an article in issue 12, the realities issue. We came up with the idea that I'd write a little bit about the experience of aphantasia and how it affects imagination. It is a relatively short article, but I've seen how it's turned out, and uh, Kalish did a fantastic job with the layout. And it. I mean, if you've ever seen Trebuchet magazine, you know it is, for an art magazine appropriately enough, a work of art. And yeah, I'm really happy with the way the whole thing looks. And there is, very generously from the publishers, a 20% discount code for any listeners to the podcast, which I'll put in the show notes. I'll put a link in there to the magazine along with the, the discount code. So if you do want to pick up a copy of it, you can do so at a bargain price. So, Paul, I hear that uh, strange things are afoot on the Misconnect Repository Convention. Yes, indeed. On the Friday evening, I joined Mike Mason and Heinrich Moore for a seminar hosted by Evan Perlman, as you say, at the Miskatonic Repository Convention online. The seminar was titled Getting Creative with Cthulhu. And yeah, it was a really good chat. And it can be found on YouTube if you search for MRCon 2022. Or if you go onto our website, blasphemoustomes.com, you can find it in the show notes there. There's no room for creativity in RPGs, Paul. Well, we do our best. And we are coming up to the end of the month, as we pointed out. So this is your last chance. If you want to get a signed copy of issue 10 of the Blasphemous Tome, this is the fanzine that we put out for the Patreon backers, the good friends of Jackson Elias, and the printed copies go out to people at the $5 level or higher. So if you are backing us, as I said, by the end of the month, you will get a copy that we have signed with our own fair extremities. And now on with our main topic, making Call of Cthulhu weird. And I said that weird. <laughs> that sounded almost West Country, that did. 
Did it? Yeah. Very good. Weird boy. <laughs> Don't start that again. <laughs> My words of Cthulhu. Yes. You got your wrong head on. Well, Call of Cthulhu is known primarily as a horror game, and for good reason. At the same time, the Cthulhu mythos is steeped in weirdness. How do we draw upon this and make Call of Cthulhu games unusual and unsettling as well as scary? What other sources might we draw upon for inspiration? Well, I think the question is, what do we mean by weird? We all kind of know what that means. Well, it's a word that's got a lot of different meanings, some of them positive, some of them negative. As I think I've mentioned quite recently on the podcast, it's generally puzzled me when people use the word weird in a pejorative manner. But yeah, I mean, weird can mean off-putting in some respects. But I think in the context we're talking about here, yeah, it's those sort of strange, unsettling, maybe even slightly wondrous games of Call of Cthulhu that don't necessarily try to scare us, but just mess with us in interesting ways. Often when the word weird comes up in conversation with me, it normally has someone say weird in a good way or weird but not <laughs> in a good way. They always have to seem to put that qualifier on the statement. I think it's fair to say that when we're talking about weird in this episode, we're talking about good weird. Yeah, in my house, when people sort of say, when the family sort of says something, you know, they watched a film and it was really like dark and disturbing. Somebody else will say, yeah, I thought it was good too. <laughs> so weird is a, I think for us and probably for our listeners, weird is generally a good thing, but for a lot of people, maybe not so much. It seems like there's a sliding scale of unusual, which, you know, seeing a kingfisher is unusual <laughs> to me, to strange, and then beyond that is weird. So things can be a bit strange, but weird is a bit beyond. It's like that sense I get of, of having the rug pulled out from under me, of not being able to get to grips with something. But at the same time, weird has a very specific meaning in the Lovecraftian sense, because Lovecraft wrote as part of a tradition which has become known as weird fiction. He wrote for Weird Tales magazine. And even to this day, you've got writers or anthologists like Jeff and Anne Vandermeer who have put out these collections, The Weird and The New Weird, trying to catalogue the development of this very tricky subgenre to pin down. And I think when we're talking about weird and Call of Cthulhu terms, both definitions, both the, the more general one and that specific literary one apply. So when we're talking about weird fiction, what, what does that actually mean? Well, that was what I was going to ask you, Scott. You were saying it was a, something that Lovecraft wrote in, and obviously there was weird tales. It's like the definitive thing where his work was published. So what is distinctive about that thing, that, that weird tales, weird fiction, as opposed to horror fiction? Because it wasn't called horror fiction. Horror doesn't have to be weird. Absolutely. Back in those days... I think it was more a question of genre labels not being the genre labels that we expect now. Mm. And weird fiction was a much more catch-all category for what we might consider these days to be science fiction, fantasy, and horror. That all three of them fell under that umbrella at the time because they weren't necessarily these defined categories that publishers use now. 
But at the same time, the type of things that you saw in Weird Tales and the other weird pulps of the time, the kinds of things that Lovecraft and his circle wrote, were a particular kind of weird that I think differentiates itself from, as you said, from more general horror fiction, but more importantly, I guess, from the horror fiction or the ghost stories and the gothic tales that had come before as being much more exercises in pure imagination. I think also that because they're so divorced in that sense from, well, I hesitate to use the word traditional, but at least other styles and formats of fiction that have come before, like you don't really have much in terms of fiction before Lovecraft and before even Weird Tales was published about alien gods from the stars coming down to Earth. It seems very much that he was working on a very different rule set to the fiction he was um, that he was creating and the worlds he was building. That there really isn't anything comparable. So it seems to be a very groundbreaking subgenre of fiction that it seems like everything gets lumped in with the word weird because there's nothing to compare it against things that have come beforehand. Mm. Yeah, it's it's stuff that defies categorization or easy categorization. Which ironically becomes a category in its own right. <laughs> it's hard to pin down, isn't it? It's hard to identify what is weird, because it's because it's weird. <laughs> but I mean, if I think about Lovecraft short story The Outsider, when I think of it, I think of the ending. I think of mm. this figure which goes along a road and then he sees a house and he goes in the house and everybody runs away and screams and he sees he looks through a doorway and sees a ghoulish figure horrific figure coming towards him and he reaches out and it reaches out and they touch each other and he realizes the mirror that's strange to me that's that's Mm. kind of uh enchanting it's strange it's a little weird but what i often forget and what i remember when i go back to the story is the start Mm. he's underground he's in a weird underground world that is like the world it appears to have a sky there are big tall columns maybe trees and things growing up and he climbs up one he's in this tower room and he climbs up and he goes through a trap door in the top of the tower and he enters our world well i guess our world like a, a, a graveyard but that's weird that i can't quite you know we can talk about or oh, it might be a the afterlife it might be some underground crypt that he's in but it is weird because of the scale of it and the way lovecraft describes it and i think often i find with lovecraft's tales i remember the parts of the story and the you know maybe like the monsters and and the ending and and so on and i kind of forget some of the weird stuff and then when i go back and reread it i go oh god i'd forgotten this this is really weird this bit I don't know if you do that, but oh, yeah. that's my experience. And often those weird bits are actually the bits I enjoy most, strangely, mm. and what set them apart. I think this is what differentiates weird fiction from pure horror. If we're talking about pure horror fiction or that attempt just to really scare us, I think fundamentally it's engaging with a different part of our brain, a different part of our psyche, that horror operates on... I'd argue a fundamentally animal level that it's about the fear of predation, it's about the fear of the unknown, it's about the fear of what we can't see in the shadows outside and what it might do to us if we encounter it. It's about the fear of death. 
But where the weird comes into play, it's much more about trying to fill in some of that darkness or imagining Mm. what's out there and coming up with stories about what all these, these unknown things that we might encounter are and what makes them not us, what makes them completely outside our, our normal experiences. I think also there's a degree of subversion as well in setting up weird tales that if you make it out to be something and then it turns out that it's not. So going back to like the, the example of the outsider, you have this realm that's described and then you realise that it's underground when the fact he pops out of the top of the tower and it, it's a hatch in a, like in a crypt. There's another example of that which came to mind from a book I read a long time ago, The, uh, the Sunset Warrior by Eric Van Lusbader that has a similar kind of reveal at the end of that book that where they've been all this time is an underground facility and then it's they finally get to this uh, almost like observation hatch at the, at the very top that it's describing something in such a way that the reader might feel that it's one thing but then putting little hints in in mm. that text that finally reveal that this is actually something else. It's when you go back and reread it, you can obviously see that that setup. But when you read it through the first time, you maybe miss over those details. But it's that kind of realization when the, everything twists on its head and it becomes something very, very different that I think is a great technique that's employed in a lot of weird fiction that really makes an impact with me anyway. Yeah, because Lovecraft talks about in his weird fiction how essential it is to set it up as real world and make it as convincingly realistic as he can. Hence, he wrote in his own period for the most part. Then when the weird comes in, it feels genuinely weird because we we build Hmm. up this expectation that it's the normal world. If I see a zombie film and there's a zombie in it, I'm not really surprised. It's not weird. That's just perfectly normal. Or if I'm watching any horror film and there's a, a ghost or something, It doesn't feel weird. If I was walking through the graveyard in Buckingham on my way home this morning and something like I heard scrabbling and something broke up through the earth and it was like a human figure covered in like moss and, I don't know, icky stuff, that would be weird, I think. You sure? (laughs) I fucking would, right? This is Buckingham after all. Yeah, that's true. I think it's about expectation. Yeah. So when we start watching Twin Peaks, for example, that's known as a, I think, at the top of the tree of weirdness, David Lynch is sat up there looking down at us all to me. <laughs> and Twin Peaks starts off, it's kind of reasonably realistic setting. It's a bit quirky though. <laughs> then we get a few strange things like, you know, I can't remember the chronology of, of how things are introduced, but there's like the one-armed man and things like that and, and, and various things happening. It's a bit strange. It's a bit quirky. It's a bit funny in places. And then you, you get the little man from another place and, and the Black Lodge and you're like, what the fuck is going on now? And it, it, it just has this way of, of drawing you in. But I was thinking, is it always the case that it has to be real world? Because, like, you know, you take your razor head, it's kind of real world, but at no point do I think I can go and live in that place. At least I hope I don't. 
if we're going back to the original weird fiction, then we're looking at writers like Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard just as much as we're looking at Lovecraft and their stories were by and large not set in our world. Even with Lovecraft, some of his weirder pieces are things like the Dreamland stories. And those, again, are not of our world. And I was wondering, are they weird? They're kind of weird, but it's a bit like what I was saying about the, the horror film and there's a zombie in it. That's not weird. It's a dream. Well, dreams are weird. So when I'm reading Dreamlands, I don't know if I get, to some degree, I think it's the the strength of the, the writer or the film director or the TV director's craft that they can make something feel weird. But I think if you have something that is a dream, like Dreamlands, or like, you know, the Beatles Yellow Submarine film or something like that, where it's all kind of trippy and weird. It almost feels more difficult to make that weird because you've raised your bar so high. So like Over the Edge, Alamaja, is it weird? It feels like it's trying too hard to be weird and everything's weird. And then if everything's weird, is anything weird? I quite like Alamara. No, I do too. I mean, I like it. Especially the airport. But again, that comes down to that it's, again, subverting that expectation. You describe, yeah, you're coming into land and you see this pyramid and then it's you realise the GM then puts the, the ground at the wrong end of the pyramid. So you suddenly realise it's upside down. But how the hell is it doing that? And it's, again, just playing around with we've got expectation. Well, I guess I don't feel drawn into that. I feel like I feel like you sort of look at it and you go, oh, that's kind of weird. Mm. I think I've got to feel invested in the story in some way for then something to feel weird, I suppose, as I would in real life. I'm kind of invested in real life, to my error probably. But Where do you stand then on writers like Clark Ashton Smith? Because he is very much in the weird tradition. There's a lot of very strange stuff in his stories, a lot of bizarre characters and entities and descriptions. But... Barring a handful of stories, they are not rooted in anything that you'd recognise as our reality. No, and I feel like we've talked about the Seven Gears' story with Ralabarvus and all that. I don't know what the language is to describe it, but it's not the weird. I almost need other words. I don't know, whimsical's not the right word. It feels a bit whimsical. It is weird, but it's not weird in the way that I would look for in a Call of Cthulhu game. For me, it's more towards the fantasy end of the spectrum. Mm. There are elements that do make it weird because, again, good using, I seem to be leaning on the word quite a bit, but again, it's kind of subversion of what would be considered fantasy tropes. And we had that with the Seven Gears, especially the end, you aren't expecting it to just end the way it does. And that's almost mm. a tongue-in-cheek stab at the way such stories would have normally ended. It's like, no, I'm going to do something completely different, which almost veers towards, towards farce in a way. Mm. You talk about fantasy tropes, but fantasy as a genre barely existed at the time that Clark Ashton Smith was writing. There were fairy tales, and I mean, Lord Dunsany had written his dreamers' tales and stuff like that, and The King of Elfland's Daughter. <laughs> but on the whole, a fantasy is, as a genre, is a much more modern thing. So 
I don't think Smith was setting out to subvert tropes there. I think he was just telling the stories that he wanted to tell. He was perhaps subverting expectations of storytelling, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't trying to subvert fantasy because fantasy, as we consider it today, didn't exist. So when was he writing that stuff? 1920s. Yeah, I thought it was later than that. Smith stopped writing in 1936 when when Lovecraft and Howard died. Um, Most of his work was in the 1920s. I don't know fantasy that well, admittedly, so I don't have any anything I can draw upon timelines. But I don't think it really matters what he was intending to do. It's how we look at it now. I think is is what I'm sort of thinking about, and and, and I would agree, Matt. It feels more like more like a kind of light-hearted fantasy. I mean, it is weird. Let's you know, you could easily use that that word to describe it, but. Like I say, I feel it's in a different way to the way I would look to to use weird in, in Call of Cthulhu. But you're focusing on one particular story there that is sure. you know, very atypical for Smith, that one story. I'm, I'm thinking about, say, his Zothique tales. Mm-hmm. They are darker. Yeah, which mm. are, are far weirder stories. Yeah, yeah. So what are good examples of the kind of weirdness that we would look for when we're thinking about the kind of weirdness that we're talking about in a game weirdness is i guess what i'm saying is weirdness is such a broad thing because you know we talk about being weird the bus didn't turn up you know that's not weird that's that's normal yeah but the word is 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 used for so many things you know but i mean if we're specifically looking at call of cthulhu which i I think we are then yeah, I think it's it's primarily the elements that stray furthest from what we consider to be conventional horror or you know, established horror. I remember a while back, oh gosh, like 15 years ago, there was an RPG that came out that I picked up uh, called Deliria, which I, it was an interesting game. I don't think it's an entirely successful one. Beautiful game book with a really interesting background. Basically, it's all about fairy tales and the intrusion of the uh, the land of fairy into the everyday world. But there was a pitch for it. I can't remember whether it was a fan who wrote this or whether it was an official bit of marketing for the book. But someone described it as being like Call of Cthulhu, except with a sense of wonder replacing the sense of horror. <laughs> that it was about these these intrusions in the real world of, right. of, of this. And I remember being quite taken aback by that and sort of thinking, well, actually, no, a big part of the appeal of the mythos for me is that sense of wonder. 100%. There are a lot of horror RPGs out there, all right. Call of Cthulhu was the first one. But there are a lot of ones that are much more about classic ghost stories or more visceral horror or anything like that. But Call of Cthulhu touches upon the numinous in a way that I think makes it fairly uniquely weird. Yeah, I think so. I think that sense of wonder, I mean... It's described as a horror role-playing game. I don't think it has to have horror in it. No. Certainly some of Lovecraft's stories don't. And I think even the ones that we do think of as horror stories, 
it largely comes down to perspective as to how horrific they are. I was thinking about this earlier. And, for example, let's take The Shadow Out of Time. So that is, I think, you know, in most people's minds, a horror story to some extent. I mean, it's more of a science fiction story than a horror story, but there are elements of it that are disturbing. Mm. This whole idea of having your mind snatched away from you and being replaced and so on. But if you look at it from another point of view, it is potentially a story of these humans who are in a unique position of exploring this alien civilization and meeting entities from across the scope of time and non-human intellects and learning things that are beyond human understanding. All right, they're doing it while trapped in a, a fairly disturbing alien body after having been separated from their normal lives. But... This, to me, depending on how you looked at it and how you presented those elements, particularly in the game, yes, this could be a horror story, but it could be a really kind of weird and wondrous adventure tale. This brings back memories of when we were discussing The Whisper in Darkness and thinking, yeah, would you really want to have your uh, brain removed from your body and put in a canister? And my immediate response was, fuck yeah, especially after all the problems that I've gone through with my body in the last 12 months. I'd never want to have those problems again. I'd rather have the ability to fly through space in my brain canister and see the universe like, like no other living being on Earth has. That is wondrous. That is such a such a great thing. And the bonus of that is you could still record the show. <laughs> Might sound a bit tinny. We just plug you into the mic input and you're away. We'd have to deal with the, the time delay if you were like broadcasting from Pluto or something. But mm -hmm. Considering how shit your internet is sometimes, it probably wouldn't make that much difference. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly get you there. There is plenty of stuff in the mythos to be in awe of yeah. rather than just horrified by. Even like seeing a doll rear itself up as it's almost eaten the whole planet. Like if you found yourself on Yadith and then uh, were seeing the whole these gigantic worms eating the whole planet around you, it, it might be terrifying, but it's also a quite awesome sight. When I think of the, the sort of weird, wondrous side of, of this, I'm thinking much more about experience than observation. I know... Yes, all right, Lovecraft's protagonists very often just wander from scene to scene observing stuff and very rarely do things. But if we're looking at this in terms of what we do in games inspired by these elements, I'm drawn much more to these weird situations, these weird environments that player characters might be drawn into and how those would play out as games, how they present opportunities for player characters uh, to do interesting things and players to explore weird ideas. Yeah, and I think those weird ideas for me, you know, it comes back to that thing that we talked about before. I think more so than with any other game. Listening to Frankenstein's RPG podcast, one of the suggestions they had was that every game, maybe every session, should include a, a wow moment, essentially that sense of wonder about something, about some aspect of the game. To me, I think for Call of Cthulhu, it's that what the fuck moment mm -hmm. when something, it's not necessarily something's revealed, but something happens, you know, something something in the in in the game and people just sort of 
you know, you just stop and you look up and you what the fuck is going on now? How, what's this? Something that challenges your conceptions of of the the premise of the game or the reality that the characters find themselves in, some fundamental assumption or expectation that has been completely undermined. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean. I don't like blowing me on Trump. But this is what people tell me they like about my scenarios, like I don't know, Dockside Dogs and Gatsby the Great Race, and and so on. Is that they kind of get that from them. It, it's hard to always pin down where that lies. Mm. But that is the thing that I, I kind of go for, I suppose, and, and I search for it by trying to find it myself. It's a feeling of um, disconcertedness, of uh, a weird feeling inside that, oh, this is, this is weird. I, I don't know what's going on now. I mean, I can think of like scenes that typify it, not necessarily in game, but in you know, in, in films and mm-hmm. so on, things that you just can't kind of add up. I mean, I'm thinking of like uh, Lost Highway mm-hmm. with David Lynch. The main character meets another guy at a party who looks kind of weird, and he goes up to him and he's chatting to him and he says, "Oh, we've met." The little guy says, "Oh, we've met before," and he says, "Well, I don't recall that." He says, "Oh yeah, at your house." You know, I I don't remember. And he says, uh, "Ring me up. I'm there right now." I'm in your house and he rings his house, he rings his home and the same guy that he's talking to answers the phone. It's like, what? (laughs) What's going on now? He stood in front of him and yet he's in his house as well at home. It's just these things that, and sometimes they're things that as a keeper occur to you in the moment. You know, they don't Mm. have to be plotted out. I mean, they're great if they're plotted out in the scenario, but sometimes they just, you know, occur on the fly and they're great fun as a i mean the players don't know whether it's in the scenario or or in the moment but either way it can be a lot of fun i think and that's one of the fun of playing the games thinking of inspirations for weirdness i had that exact scene in lost highway uh, in my notes uh, to to reference so great great minds think alike it is a killer yeah yeah it's just that grasping for what is going on that's something I've thought about, especially with uh, another scenario of mine, Sapline Chalice, that there's particular moments that I had in my mind that I think this would be crazy to happen at the table. And then thinking up a internal logic behind how this can happen in a narrative. Mm. Obviously, the players may not ever get the narrative of how things are actually working and why there is a consistent framework for everything that's occurring in that scenario. But to them, as far as they're concerned, they've turned up to a house and then some odd stuff happens, and then all of a sudden a guy arrives at the door, and then he arrives again, and again, and again. And just having that as, right. as an image, I thought was, that's an amazing thing to throw into a scenario to really make people go, what the hell? Mm. Yeah. I don't know that you necessarily always have to have a rationale for that. Going back to Lost Highway, if you asked David Lynch what that scene means, what's really happening, <laughs> what do you think he'd tell you? Rabbits. It's all about the rabbits. I think he'd tell you to fuck off. <laughs> He's not going to say, is he? But I think part of that is that there isn't necessarily a rationale for it in his mind. Yeah. That he thought it would be unsettling, that he thought it would fit in with the themes of the film, that it worked well for the characters, and that it operates on the level of dream logic. 
but it doesn't necessarily make any rational sense and nothing that you can apply to it is going to make it make rational sense. And that's fine. The difficult part when you're trying to bring this weirdness into the game is making that work because it's a really difficult thing to get right. Or no, Sorry, I'll put it another way. It's a really easy thing to fuck up because it's easy to overdo it. It's easy to make it feel like you're just throwing random shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. I think you've got to choose your moments well, choose the the themes and the feel of it well, make it feel like it fits into the tone of the scenario and the imagery and the motifs that you set up. And if you do all that then you don't have to have a reason for it. I come from a very different viewpoint on that, that for me, if I want to have a story that is weird or something I want to run at the table that is a pre-written scenario, it has to provide a framework as to how all these events can happen. Classic example for me that I've run recently and I hadn't touched for a long, long time is the Unknown Army scenario of Bill in Three Persons. Hmm. That from a player's perspective, as we were playing through that, we, we played it with one group, we played it over a few sessions, and the players were kind of looking at each other in the breaks and going, what the utter fuck is going on here? <laughs> and they had no idea what was unfolding but to me as the gm i've read the backstory i've read the encounters i know exactly what's going on it's just because they don't have all that information it doesn't make sense to them and with Mm. that scenario they may never get it in that i'm just playing through that one individual story but it would be something that maybe as it's left hooks dangling at the end of it that they might realize an encounter and finally piece it together in later scenarios but there is still that framework there is still that story and background provided for the gm and it gives the gm a good degree of confidence in being able to or coherence in being able to present it to the players rather than it feeling just like oh and a a mongoose jumps through the door with a machine gun what do you do Mm. it doesn't have that kind of randomness to it that the narration would give they have a a more instilled confidence because they've read the whole thing and they know exactly what's going on. And it allows them with that framework, a degree of improvisation that they could in theory inject a bit more weirdness if they wanted, but they know the confines in which they're doing it rather than just having a, oh, just make shit up and it doesn't matter. I don't think that makes us fulfilling an experience for the player at the other end of the table. Yeah, I I would agree, Matt. I think having a background or a reason for the weirdness it can you know sometimes it is a manifestation of something weird if it's a mythos entity they can manifest weird things that doesn't always follow human rationality perhaps but there's going to be something behind the weirdness if you're just throwing out weirdness i don't really think that works and i i think if we look at david lynch i don't know how he does what he does because some people don't like it some people don't it's not they don't like it it's that they it doesn't work for them and they're they're just turned off by it and i can understand that that's perfectly fine but somehow he has a way of drawing me in as a viewer into the the weirdness and it can be weirdness heaped on weirdness sometimes with with him but he has some way of of latching in to you and, and like reeling the viewer in that in the hands of other directors, I think a lot of people think, oh, that's easy. Just, you know, mm. just have somebody drinking black coffee and some little guy dancing around and some red curtains and black and white tiles on the floor and, oh, it'd be weird. It's not weird. It's just, it's a bit crappy. But in David Lynch's hands, somehow, so I think it's it's down to the, the craft of the director 
that they manage to make it weird. I think it's very difficult to genuinely make things weird. I think you can have monsters. You can have deep ones and they come out and they attack you. They are, with a small W perhaps, let's call it, they're weird. But you don't get that big W weird that we're, we're sort of talking about of that sense of disconcerting strangeness. Well, we're talking about Lynch in particular. Yes, it is that skill, that art, that's making this weirdness feel right. But it isn't what we were talking about there with having the underpinnings of a solid backstory and working out why all the weird things are happening. It is that that knowledge of how to tap into your subconscious and find these manifestations that appeal to the subconscious of other people without necessarily knowing yourself or why that's happening. David Lynch is a great example of it, but I mean, we've talked about Robert Aikman on the podcast before. He did exactly the same thing. His stories are absolutely filled with that. Lots of stuff where if you sit down and try to analyse exactly what happened, you're just going to tie yourself up in knots. But if you read the story, at no point do you get taken out of it and think, well, hang on, no, that, that doesn't work, because it, it all makes sense on a subconscious level. I mean, there are plenty of other writers who pull that off. I, I think Jonathan Carroll does a great job of it. I think there's a lot of magical realist writing that, that does that. I and mean, Borges does an awful lot of that. And I think that ability to tap into your subconscious and find these things that, that work there is at least as useful to coming up with a consistent sense of weirdness than any rationale that you might come up with. I think also rationale helps to facilitate players being able to interact with it because the difference between reading a weird book and reading a weird film is that you as the reader or viewer are very passive whereas mm. unless it's an incredibly badly written scenario you are going to be an act the players are going to be an active part in what's going on and they mm. will interact with what's happening the gm then has to tailor the reactions of whatever this weird thing is that they're dealing with mm. and it's a lot more of an interactive relationship that's going on there but yeah. they still need a hand or they still need a helpful guidance on how to make that weirdness work and i think explaining it in terms that they understand is a way for them to be able to ad lib and provide that reaction with it making at least a degree of sense to them even if it doesn't make necessarily too much sense to the player at least it's they're able to provide that response in a quick and timely manner rather than just having to think what's a weird thing i can throw at them hmm I think we might be talking about two different things here, though. I'm not talking about writing scenarios at this stage. I'm talking about GMing. I'm talking about mm -hmm. techniques that you as a GM at the table can use. I think that what we're talking about there is a, a very difficult thing, maybe even impossible, but certainly a very difficult thing to put into a written scenario. You can try, I mean, you can put sort of thematic elements and motifs and so on in there and sort of give some idea of how to improvise around them and riff on them. But there is no magical formula for writing a scenario that says, okay, at this point, tap into your subconscious and make magic happen. That is not only impossible, but it's probably a dereliction of your duty as a writer. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I, I could think probably several indie RPGs that might put some crazy lines like that in their write-ups. <laughs>
is a very mundane thing, but one thing that, I mean, this almost goes back to David Lynch here, that I use an awful lot just to try to create an odd atmosphere in games is just trying to find eccentricities or weird character quirks for NPCs. Find ways of making NPCs feel off-kilter, even in more mundane situations. For example, it's a small thing, but it just really seemed to work to set the mood at the time. I ran the Star Brothers from Flotsam and Jetsam, written by Brian Cortemange, fantastic scenario, for how we roll a little while back. And they got really interested in an NPC who was living in this hut out in the marshes. There were a few things that Brian had put in the scenario there that were were interesting and gave me hooks, but they were spending so much time with her and wanting to go into her house that I was thinking, I need to add something else here just to engage their interest. And so I just randomly thought, okay, she spends her time catching frogs out in the marsh and stuffing them and arranging them in dioramas. And so the house was just absolutely full of all these arrangements of stuffed frogs doing various things, playing sports and musical instruments and on. I'd seen things like this in curio shops when I was a kid and to make an impression. Mm. I just thought a house full of all of those would be absolutely bizarre. And so I just went to town describing all this. And I think they spent something like an hour there just talking to this woman and going through the house and were absolutely taken with all this. And it did lend a, a certain sense of, not unreality, but a sort of a certain sense of what the fuck to what was otherwise a, a fairly simple expositional scene. I can certainly see how that works. For me, it's probably something that, unless it's handled very, very delicately, if it becomes too overbearing, it loses a bit of its impact. Because hmm. if it's on screen too long, like, oh, we're with this weird character for the next like 40 minutes of this film or like a whole episode of a TV series, it gets diluted. It becomes far too much the normal. Whereas individual moments of weirdness, which again Lynch does very, very well, like the horse just appearing in the Palmer's living room, which mm. if you then read the Diary of Laura Palmer, the book that was put out after the series, you find that it's a potentially if the, um, I think Frost wrote it, I can't remember who um, who put it out. But anyway, they put an explanation on it that it's a kind of a manifestation of a horse that uh, Laura had when she was a kid. So they're putting at least a backstory onto why this thing appears rather than just it's, it's a horse. Another example, not a Lynch one, but very in his style, I think it's Oliver Stone, his miniseries from the 90s, Wild Palms. Oh, yeah. Begins with a vision of a rhino in a swimming pool and a character standing there going, so this is how it begins. Yeah. Just those moments of, what the hell? But then otherwise characters acting, again, kind of normal. It's that going back to Lovecraft's line of make the world normal and then the weirdness stands out a lot more. And I think those flashes of weirdness are more effective than having characters that act weird or quirky all the time because I think that just has a bit more of an impact. I mean, quirkiness is fine. I know weird NPCs are fun to play. They add a lot of colour to a narrative, but they get diluted for me if they're not handled correctly. Yeah, I remember Wild Palms in the 90s. It was kind of a on the back of Twin Peaks, mm. it seemed, at the time. Maybe it's good. I, I at the time I, I watched some of it and then didn't really click with it. It seemed like a pale imitation of, of Twin Peaks to me at the time, but maybe I maybe I misjudged it. That's fair enough. It starts off well and then kind of goes a bit downhill. Right. 
I mean, I would say an older a TV show, um, The Prisoner, has some distinct weirdness in it. And shows like The Twilight Zone, in certain episodes of that, you get that sensation of, of weirdness, which I'm, I'm kind of intrigued why I enjoy that sensation so much. We talked about the appeal of horror. What's the appeal of weirdness? Because it seems like to me, weirdness goes with strange, goes with unusual, but really weirdness is something we live with all the time in many ways. You know, what's weirder than dreams? Mm. You wake up and you remember that dream. We may not remember our dreams every day, but but dreams are sort of quintessentially weird, it seems to me. And we all live with them. And we all live with the weird things going on that we can't understand out there. We kind of blank them out and we don't really think about them. And it feels like these experiences in fiction are something like taking a, a fairground ride where I get to experience physical sensation that would normally cause terror if you were in a car and you felt like you were on a, a roller coaster. That'd be terrifying. But on a roller coaster, it's fine. But I get to feel that sensation. And I wonder if through weird fiction, I get to feel that sensation of weirdness, but in a, you know, in a safe way. And I, and I kind of like that. It is, I think, fundamentally about tickling the imagination. But our brains change an awful lot as we age. There's something that happens around puberty where our sense of reality settles down more. We live less in a, a state of pure imagination. I mean, I've heard, I don't know how accurate this is, but I've heard that one of the appeals of strong psychedelic drugs like LSD is they do take us back to that sort of childish mindset where everything's possible. I mean, they do a lot more than that, but it's they sort of break down some of our sense of concrete reality and put us back more into that that sense of experiencing everything as if it's fresh that we're we're interacting directly with the experience rather than the map that we've made of the experience rather than the icon we've made of the experience in our head and i think there's an element of that with the weird in fiction, with the weird in RPGs, that by assaulting our sense of reality, by assaulting our perceptions, then you're kind of trying to trick the mind or push the mind into direct experience. You're trying to get that, that fresh perspective on the world that adult life doesn't normally encourage. Hmm. I think as an adult, yeah, you're trying to process the world and you're trying to keep it rational and sensible. It's not just that. You've developed a whole lot of categories and it's like your mind is a filing cabinet and you encounter a new experience and it's sort of, all oh, right, yeah, that's that's like this thing that I encountered 20 years ago. And you, you immediately make the mapping and to some extent mm. you're seeing it in terms of that experience from 20 years ago. But the, the, the more kind of fresh, childish, weird experience is treating that as an entirely novel experience and feeling it for real again rather than mediated through previous experience. We talked about weird books, and I don't mean to uh, offend anyone, but can you tell me a weirder book than the Bible? Uh, Illuminatus, maybe, but it's a close-run thing. I was going to say House of Leaves. But yeah, 
Yes, there is a lot of wild, wild stuff, particularly in the Old Testament. <laughs> but people are drawn to that. Yeah. Is it the best-selling book of all time? I think it is, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, belief is a, let's put that to one side as a, as a weird thing, but yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in that, but people, that's what I mean about people in their everyday life being drawn to weirdness all the time. Um, there's a lot of stuff in there that somehow, because it purported to happen 2000 years ago, it gets a pass, but some guys walking around bringing people act alive there's there's snakes that can talk there's all manner of things that are going on that were they to happen today would be arch weirdness there's curses apocalypses people being turned to pillars of salt yeah it's yeah yeah there you go william s burroughs i don't think come up with weirder stuff than you'll find in there crashing the wine economy by making water into wine what why did he have to replicate bread and fish why couldn't it be a different more wholesome food I don't think you need to feel any degree of religious faith to be drawn to that. As you say, that there's a reason why people keep reinventing and retelling those stories in different forms and have done for the past couple of thousand years. Just from a cultural perspective, there's so much in there that speaks to us as part of the fabric of our culture. But when you go back and look at it, as you say, it is so deeply weird that it has the simultaneous effect of prodding our imagination in that way. Yeah. I almost feel like the world is a weird place and that makes me crave reassurance. And reassurance can be found in a lot of places like religion, like I don't know, conspiracy theories, all manner of things. You can go into any belief system and it gives you some, you know, you take reassurance wherever you can. And that could be believing in the flat earth. It could be QAnon. It could be whatever, really. It's, it, but it's something that other people believe this and that that's a way of processing the weirdness. And so that's how I'm going to do it too. And I feel better about that now. It's not just processing the weirdness, but it's finding meaning. There's a wonderful quote which I can't remember specifically from Alan Moore where he's talking about the appeal of conspiracy theories and he talks about how even the most terrifying conspiracy theory is comforting because it gives you the feeling that someone is in charge, someone knows what they're doing Mm. in this chaotic world and that everything isn't just chaos. That's what I mean by like reassurance. It's it's a, a sense of reassurance that you get from that. You sound dangerously close to saying David Icke is right when you no. say that. Well, clearly he is, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the lizard people all along. Ah, damn. So let's not lose sight of the fact that when David Icke says lizard people, what he means is Jews. He is a deeply anti-Semitic man, and let's not give him a pass there. That's the first I've heard of that interpretation, but fair enough. Yeah. Oh. His stuff isn't just the harmless crankery that it appears to be. I wasn't under the illusion that it was harmless crankery. I've long since been disabused of the idea that crankery is is harmless. Yeah. Because people take it seriously. And uh, it seems funny to start with, like so many things did about seven years ago. And then, uh, you know, it became clear that a lot of people kind of jumped the shark with these things. And that's weird. <laughs> that's fucking weird that people believe all this stuff. I don't know. That, that is like, if we're going to talk about weird, that now queer as folk thing, 
there's nothing weirder than, to me than, than what other people believe. And I probably seem weird to them. I don't know, probably. There's a lot of the conspiracy theory, UFO, occult intersection that in the 1990s did seem to be such a rich source of weirdness. And as scenario writers or GMs, we might be drawn to a lot of that stuff and think it's great inspiration. And in recent years, I've found it almost impossible to get any pleasure is the wrong word, but get any inspiration out of it all because it's all become so dangerously toxic and terrifying that it horrifies me for the wrong reasons. Yeah, when Fox Mulder had that poster on his wall, I want to believe, that was cool. Yeah. It was fun. I'm not sure it's fun now because it's associated with uh, too... It should be replaced with like too many people believe this now. I want to believe in the conspiracy of of people drinking baby blood. I want people to stop believing. (laughs) Whereas I look at it and think, I want to believe The X-Files was decent after season five. Matt, have you watched series one? It was never good. I've watched the whole thing all the way through and the additional films, yes. Did you? Well done. Good. Yeah, I've never seen it all. I I sometimes think about going back and like restarting it, but... That's what I did. That would be so much of... Such a big part of my life. Anyway. Yeah, there there were some decent episodes, but 90% of it was absolute shit. Well, that's life. So how do we, in scenarios, weave weirdness into them? We can have horror, I think. It's not that hard to perhaps horrify people. It's hard to frighten people. But you can have things that perhaps horrify us. I think weirdness is perhaps harder. I think it is, yeah. They both have the same fundamental problem, which Matt touched upon earlier, which is diminishing returns. Mm. It's difficult to keep stuff fresh, whether it's frightening people, weirding them out or whatever. Yeah. If something works once, it's great but it's not going to work again and you have to do it sparingly otherwise you become completely inured to it yes there's also the risk that if you go overboard with the the weirdness it's not even what you were talking about before paul with wanting to keep it rooted in the real world i think if you go too weird with let's say with um, a Cthulhu Mythos game, you decide that, yes, you are going to do what we were talking about earlier, say, have your brain put in a jar and go for a magical mystery tour around the universe with the uh, Amigo. You could have a lot of fun potentially playing that game. But one problem with it is that you take this brain canister off to an alien world and all the rules are different here there's different languages alien life forms that are so alien that you might not even recognize them as life forms the laws of physics are different you're traveling through four-dimensional space and you're conveying all of this stuff to the players as best you can you as a player perhaps are sitting there thinking yeah, right, but what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. You're telling me all these things, but what do I do? You as a player, you're like, the first time you turn up as a head in a jar and you're taken off, that's weird. Next session, what's your character? Oh, my character's head in a jar. Well, that's not weird anymore. It's just that's who they are. Or, or you know, my character works in a bank, my character's a head in a jar. Right. Okay. Yeah, it just becomes quickly mundane, doesn't mm-hmm. it? But they're two different problems. 
is that scale of weirdness. If it's too weird, you can't engage with it. Yeah, and I think we've all probably experienced that as well in games when when they're just ladling on weirdness and it just becomes set dressing and it's like, well, okay, well, it's there and it's weird, but um, I don't know. What am I supposed to do with this? I remember reading Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness a while back and the first three or four chapters in it are setting out this world and you are hit with all these alien descriptions and words and character names and it feels like word salad and i went through those first four chapters sort of thinking why am i doing this to myself i don't understand a fucking thing that's happening here and eventually after those four chapters it did click and the bits started making sense and i could follow what was going on and then follow the narrative and it ended up being an absolutely fucking amazing book and i loved it but just for those first four chapters it was so disengaging and yeah, I've had that experience in games as well, where I think it tends to be a thing in fantasy and perhaps science fiction more than in, say, classic Call of Cthulhu, where you're just hit with so many weird ideas and terms and creatures that you can't keep up. But I think potentially with that situation we were talking about there, or if your character became a deep one and went down to Yehanathalei or had their mind swapped by the Yithians and, and went off and tried to learn all this stuff, there would be that potential of sort of semantic overload. Hmm. It's a great thing to happen in narrative. I keep thinking back to that uh, wonderfully striking visual at the end of Stuart Gordon's Dagon of them swimming down into the hole, going down into the depths. But that's a good point at which to leave the story because you're kind of thinking as a player or as a viewer, Christ, I want more. This is this is good. But it then, I don't know, I feel like I might be disappointed if they then try to present it to me and it's not living up to my expectations. I almost dismiss the weirdness. Or just making it something not as awesome or as, I don't know, my expectations might be too high, but I think that's that's a big pitfall that you're potentially walking into right there when you're trying to go full on weird. But what I mean is, is like that scene you're seeing, do you feel like that's setting up a, a sense of weirdness in your mind that if you were actually shown it might not kind of live up to that expectation? It, you know, it's almost like your expectation would be diminished by actually seeing it. Yeah, exactly that. It's kind of what's over that hill, but do I really want to know what's there? Yeah, so is that sometimes best left with having you had your imagination inspired, I suppose. Mm. That's fun. And then we can certainly do that in games. I think that's that's the one of the, the key jobs of a role-playing game, I think, is to spark your imagination. Then just to wrap things up, let's have a think about the mechanical aspect of how we'd handle a really weird game. And I think there are two particular things that we'd need to address there in terms of Call of Cthulhu. One comes down to, I think, player agency. And I think if you're going to run a profoundly weird game, using Pulp Cthulhu is probably a must, in that you're, you've got characters who I think are better able to directly engage with the weirdness I totally disagree. I don't think I don't, that doesn't work for me. I don't think Pulp Cthulhu and weirdness doesn't necessarily go together, does it? 
When I'm talking about a profoundly weird game here, I'm going back to the examples we were talking about before with perhaps, you know, going off to Yagath or Yohannath Lee or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think if we're going to do that where it's all weird all the time, Hmm. then, yeah, you do need to have characters that have a bit more agency and a bit more ability to interact with the weirdness on its own level just to stop it being you as a player sitting there and looking at the pretty lights. Mm. But the other that's related to that would be how you handle sanity because if your character is just spending the entire time fainting and running away because things are just constantly weird then that's not going to be any fun either. Yeah, there's uh, the old countdown source book describes in the in the Hasta Mythos about when you go to Carcosa that you are just going from one weird set piece to another and that there's going to be an erosion of sanity all the way through that. It's almost like drawing a, a very different parallel. If you were to play through the old Metropolis source book for Colt, you're just wandering from one combat scene into another combat scene into another combat scene, and it becomes very repetitive and it becomes very numbing after a while, not to mention incredibly tedious and boring, given my, my opinions on combat. Going back to Carcosa, that if you are surrounded by an oversaturated by weirdness, one of the recommendations they had is that you basically gather up all the sanity that they will have lost over the course of those encounters, rather than making, all right, you failed your roll again, all right, you have another mm. bout of uh, madness that you're not going to come out of anytime soon. And, and it makes almost a player character unplayable by the rules in that kind of environment, is that you gather up all the sand that they will have lost, and then you hit them with it all in one massive go when they return back to normality. And then they suffer just the effects of that one sanity loss. Yeah, that sounds a nice way to handle it. And Mm. it kind of implies that whilst they're in that weird world, they're a part of that weird world. Mm. It's only when they return that they realise just how weird it was, perhaps. As Lewis Carroll put it, we're all mad here. (laughs) Funnily enough, I have a teapot next to me with the Mad Hatter on, with that (laughs) certain quote going around the bottom of the pot. Thank Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is time once again to say thank you to people. Thank you very much to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to those weird people who have listened to all 250 episodes. Thank you very much to anyone who has backed us at any stage. And thank you to a few new people whose names we are going to utter. Yep, starting off with a thanks to Quinn Manzine. And also thank you much to the singular Brian. And thank you very much to Corey. And thanks to Dave Stotsom. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, we would love it if you'd let people know whether this takes the form of leaving a review somewhere where unsuspecting eyes might find it, uh, just letting people know about it in social media posts if it comes up in conversation, just share the good word of Jackson with like-minded people and we would be absolutely delighted. Or, you know, just walk up to the party and say, hey, we've met before. I gave you that recommendation of that podcast. In fact, I'm listening to that podcast in your house right now. Call me. (laughs) (laughs) 
You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.